you can play very tough, you can, you know, concede very slowly, you can start with a high anchor, right, and you do well for yourself. But perhaps the other side never wants to negotiate with you again. And by doing that, you've deprived yourself of a potential future negotiation partner, hence decreasing your alternatives, hence decreasing your general negotiation power. Hi, and welcome back to season four of Habits Matter. I'm your host, Shreyasi Singh, founder and CEO of Harappa Education. Through this season, my favorite guest, I'm in conversation with five trailblazing women thinkers, shaping a world of work with path-breaking ideas. In this episode, I meet Nasli Bhatia, a senior research fellow and a lecturer at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Nasli's main area of expertise is negotiation, and she's a star faculty of a course on power and influence as well. Nasli and I deep dive into the pitfalls and surprising upsides of negotiating online. Our negotiations have unique interpersonal, social, and economic challenges in times of crisis and pandemics. Nasli also debunks lazy myths about gender and negotiation and leaves women professionals with a hopeful, powerful message. Keep listening. If you were asking me, I'm going to do an important negotiation, how should I negotiate? My recommendation always is to try to do it as in an as involved um, setting as possible. The ideal is, of course, face to face. Because again, like there's so much that is communicated through the nonverbals. Uh, there's so much more effective rapport building that can be done face to face that just gets lost um, over uh, less um, rich communication media, such as email. Um, Zoom, if you know everybody has their cameras on to some extent, it really simulates that environment. Um, but especially with um, non-synchronous sequential email type of negotiations, um, a lot can be lost from a negotiation perspective. And that rapport building, that, that clicking that the two negotiators have or may have can have really important consequences for outcomes. My counter to that would be, is there benefit in also many of us doing many more negotiations in writing because the precision of the ask could be much better clarified and leaves little room for ambiguity and not understanding. And and if and and maybe that that could potentially become an advantage for us. So that's first. So could forcing us to all write more be a better negotiation tactic? When my students do uh, job negotiations over the phone uh, or in a you know over Zoom, the next step I always tell them is you need to write a very um, well-worded, articulate um, email iterating what you've talked about, just so you get it in writing. So that has to happen, right? Don't rely on anyone's memory. Don't leave any question marks for yourselves. Even when you do a negotiation um, over the phone or even face-to-face where a contract has not been signed, write an email just like oh it was such a such a pleasure to have this conversation i'm so glad you were able to meet me where you where where i was asking you to be on terms x y and z so absolutely like having that in writing has certainty um, and that has to happen regardless of what context you do the negotiation 
And second, what does it do to power and influence as well? Because if we're all boxes on a Zoom screen, the fact that somebody doesn't have to come to my intimidating office or, you know, can't see, you know, other clues like, you know, clothes or or the bags you have, other markers of status or wealth um, are less apparent. Um, and isn't that an advantage? I'm quite on the on the side of face to face. But I was thinking, you know, oh, I probably should have also talked about how this can be a great equalizer, right? This context can absolutely be an equalizer. Um, it's it's actually really interesting that. Um, Zoom has even come up with certain backgrounds that you can use if your home environment is not one that you want all your colleagues and you know co-workers to see. So in that sense, right, it doesn't really matter um, you know, like what kind of a car you drive into the office with as you're talking about like what clothes you're wearing, what bags you're carrying. Uh, we're just we're just boxes. So in that sense, it can be it can be a great equalizer in terms of power and influence. Um, so if we're talking in terms of status, right, in terms of signaling status through wealth. And, you know, with so many employers um, saying that they will, they might be largely remote um, till the end of 2021, is what happens when they're, and, the, and this is more about micro negotiations that work with team members and colleagues who you meet often and, and you know, have to do projects with together. Will there be a qualitative difference in in how you can negotiate with people who you used to know in person before and have worked with in person before and are now are you know working remotely with as opposed to new people who have joined your team for example we've had 60 people join the harappa team during uh, you know from may march 2020 till december 2020 who you've never met you know is there a qualitative difference between that um, that's going to get built up so again, I'm going to offer my opinion here because I don't think we have empirical evidence on this exact question at this exact moment. Uh, but based on what I know, if I were to make a prediction, I would say those teams that are new, that have never worked together, will need so much more time to team build. Just to give you an example from my classes, I was teaching an MBA class and an executive MBA class this semester. My MBA class um, did not know each other really well. Uh, there were a number of first years in the class that had never met in person. And my executive MBA class was all second years. So they had done, they spent considerable time together in their first year. They knew each other really well. Uh, they got along very well. And my executive MBA class was 50 people. My MBA class was only 30. And I can tell you that the environment in the class, just, you know, how well they could joke with each other, how easily, like, you know, they could do the negotiation, the logistical aspects of doing the negotiation outside of class in a pandemic, how well they manage that with ease, um, very fast at the beginning of class was, was really different across these two groups. And for even smaller teams, I expect the, the process to be the same, unfortunately. That's going to be a big challenge for companies and they need to think about that carefully. 
what interesting examples of interpersonal as well as collective negotiations have stood out for you this year? Uh, for me, the first thing that comes to mind, because it's so salient to me, uh, always top of mind, uh, is I have a toddler. Uh, she's uh, she's going to be two and a half in February. Around Halloween, it's very hard to go and ask another parent, so did you guys do any parties? I hope you didn't do any parties for Halloween. <laughs> um, so and that sounds like it's, it's, it's private medical information, but it's also a social good, right? Like if they're not, if they're not being careful, then we're all in a really tough spot in daycare. Like 150 families that are in this daycare are going to be having a very tough two weeks if it shuts down. So I found that information gathering, which is such an important aspect of negotiation, right? Like how do you get information that is critical from the other party play out really interestingly in this context because it's managing social relationship, right? I don't want to be disliked by uh, this, this person because I'm asking nosy questions. But I also really need to know if I, there are people that are being not very careful, so I should be preparing myself for a potential shutdown of daycare. I have found that negotiation to be very interesting. And I know that very similar Negotiations have played out for people uh, with their close families, which has been actually quite damaging for some. I, I mean, I know people um, in family and friends who've had very had to have very difficult uh, conversations with parents, siblings, best friends, and I mean, only time will tell whether some of those relationships will cut back. It almost seems like a value judgment. Yet, um, yeah. it, it's been it's been really really difficult, and I think has been possibly the added stress of. Uh, you know, all the fears and anxieties we felt is how to have these and how do you like disallow a sibling to come over or, you know, your, you, you know, your parents don't want you to visit and how does that make you feel um, have been genuine personal negotiations, which have been just so difficult. Absolutely. And of course, added to that is the complexity of all the negotiations that countries will have to do with each other, you know, what kind of um, uh, flight restrictions there are going to be. In the US, the, the, there were a lot of questions about how vaccine distribution is going to be carried out, uh, which states, you know, like what is going to be the relationship between the state governments and the federal government in terms of the vaccine distribution. Those are all incredibly important um, negotiations. Um, so there, there are multiple layers of negotiations that have happened as a result of coronavirus from the nuclear family all the way to international organizations. How do philosophies of long-term, you know, long-term benefits of relationships versus the short-term um, benefits or needs are playing out in negotiations? That's a very critical question in negotiation in general, right? So that trade-off is always present in negotiation, right? So you could aim for a good economic outcome in a short-term, perhaps one-shot negotiation. You can play very tough. You can, you know, concede very slowly. You can start with a high anchor, right? And you do well for yourself. But perhaps the other side never wants to negotiate with you again. And by doing that, you've deprived yourself of a potential future negotiation partner, hence decreasing your alternatives, hence decreasing your general negotiation power. 
Um, so it's, it's always, that trade-off is always present. Actually, when I talk about ethics in negotiation, uh, I always pose that question, right? Like I always say, well, this is not an ethics class, so I can't tell you not to lie, but I can tell you that if you lie and get away with it, that will probably increase your economic outcome, but that really big risk of suffering incredible reputational loss is always there if the other side even suspects that you might be lying to them. And then, of course, there's the question of living with yourself if you're lying in any context. But that's that trade-off between the long-term and the short-term is actually always present in negotiation. Sure. You know, I know you have a great interest in the role of words and what they convey in negotiations or any interpersonal um, situations and conflict. I think the power of communication and message has been clearer than ever before, um, I think, for so many of us again. Is there a, have you seen a change in language um, when it comes to negotiations? And, and let's just, you know, if we were to zoom out from particularly from this year to say any high stress, high anxiety um, uh, phases or years, does the language of negotiation change? So I should write it down so I could so I can run an experiment on it. Like the pandemic has has hit everyone in ways big or small. Even if you were lucky to be spared in terms of health, um, there were huge there was huge impact in terms of your work life, your family life, and just like you know this the sense of security that we have in our modern world that had to shut down completely. So perhaps more affiliation building words might be used more more frequently right so the way in which people start a negotiation perhaps may include more of an identification that oh haven't times been tough right i realize like times have been tough for everyone and that actually is a good way to try to negotiate difficult um difficult situations in this environment. So just to give you an example, right, like if you, let's say you were, I mean, a lot of people had to cancel weddings, for instance, right? Or like postpone. And they had to have negotiations with their vendors, the people that they paid down payments for. Some companies had to cancel internships and, you know, positions that they had opened, right? Negotiating that, which basically is a dispute, right? Uh, it's a contractual dispute, very difficult type of negotiation in general, because there's it starts with disagreement. Regular negotiation does not have to start with disagreement, but disputes always start with disagreement. So for that reason, they're very hard, but starting with an understanding and an acknowledgement that, well, this has been really tough for both of us. Let's try to like get out of this with as little damage as possible for both of us. I think that can go a really long way in this environment. You know, I think uh, on another podcast episode, I was having a conversation with one of our guests and we are talking um, on that one was decision-making in crisis. And, you know, one of the things that we mm-hmm. spoke about is sort of the shared universality of this experience has actually dissolved many of the pushes and pulls in professional life that, you know, you would otherwise have, right? Whether it's with clients, whether it's with investors, you know, there is a, since everyone is going through the same emotions and highs and lows and the same restrictions and loss of mobility and all of that, there is a, um, I, I think I sensed a greater sense of sort of universal empathy, um, which I think in other crises, you never really have a moment to appreciate or it, it won't happen. 
I absolutely agree with you. I think there has been a lot of support, or at least at my workplace, I can speak from my own experience. There's been an incredible support network between faculty, between faculty and students, with our external collaborators. There's just this understanding that this is a very extraordinary time and people are under immense pressure that may be coming from multiple sources. And we just need to be understanding. Uh, we can't have the same just go, go, go type of attitude, <clears throat> excuse me, to work anymore because we just don't know what kind of an environment that um, the other side might be, might be, might, might be facing. You know, this is a this is a question where every time one speaks about negotiation comes up and people always have. Um, what is the role of emotion during negotiation? Uh, because I'm, I'm sure, is your advice that one needs to avoid emotions altogether? And if not, how does one leverage it and use it? Absolutely not avoid it. Um, because we know that you can't really avoid it. All right, we get emotional. <laughs> so trying to avoid it as I can pretend that we're just going to um, assume emotions don't exist, that's not really productive. There is research that suggests that people actually give more to an ang seemingly angry opponent. Okay. Um, so somebody is coming in all hard and tough and playing gruff. The negotiator on the other side sort of like uses that as a cue. Oh, this person might must have very good alternatives, right? Like they don't really need me, so they give in to them more. Um, that's very counterproductive, obviously, uh, because emotions can be faked. Um, emotions can be used strategically, right? So the advice that we give is not to use emotion as information. Right? On one hand, we understand that emotion is information, right? Because somebody may actually be genuinely upset and that you know anger or that disappointment might actually be coming from what you said but it's also easy to fake um so what we always recommend is don't use emotion as an information to determine your concrete moves in negotiation just because somebody is looking very angry there's also obviously um advice against displaying um, a lot of angry emotion despite this um, potential benefit on economic outcomes because there's also other resource that suggests that when people are dealing with a really ang seemingly angry opponent if they stay at the negotiation table they may give in more but they're much more likely to just say i don't want to deal with this person and exit um, so it's a it's a very um tricky uh, things to try to use anger and negative emotion in negotiation. Now, if you're asking about how to deal with our own emotions, we also know that, you know, being anxious, for example, makes negotiate negotiators exit the negotiation prematurely. So they're, they're more likely to accept um, less aspirational offers just to deal with that anxiety and just leave. Obviously, that's also counterproductive. So I always tell my students, if you find yourself getting emotional in negotiation, if you find yourself getting angry, especially, um, you need to take a break. Right? One of the perhaps most underutilized negotiation strategies is the simple break. You need to calm yourself down because emotions make us short circuit. 
right? They don't they don't lead us in the right direction where we want to be. They 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 make us short circuit. So take a break, calm down, um, you know, reevaluate the situation, and then come come back to the table. Leave us with your you know, one negotiation framework or technique that, you know, you can tell us that you hope many of us would use more often? Uh, for me, it's always the alternative. That's what I always tell my students. The one big favor that you can do for yourself in negotiation is to make sure that you're not going into a negotiation without a plan B, right? That plan B might be another employer that is that has given you an offer. So that would be a very lucky plan B. Um, you may not have that, but you still need to think about what that alternative is. It's, 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 it surprises me how little people think about this incredibly important source of power in negotiation. They just, you know, roll into the negotiation, not having thought about what they're going to do if they actually impasse, if they actually don't get a deal. So if it was one sentence it would be, think about what you're going to do if you don't get a deal in this negotiation. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Um, we can't end with the two of us having a conversation and not talk about uh, spend some time on gender and negotiation and how it affects how we negotiate and what is really your message for women during negotiations. Some of the findings that leave women in a really difficult spot in negotiation, like a damned if you do, damned if you don't, they have problems. Uh, those, those, those papers have some issues. But when you look at these papers that show, oh, but while women are assertive, they, they, they face really bad outcomes. When you look at that language, it's not it's th that these papers use, it's not really assertive. It's really aggressive, almost unprofessional language. You know, so just to give you an example, some of these papers that show, oh, if women negotiate assertively, they get a bad outcome. For example, in the in the experiment, there will be a female uh, job candidate, and this job candidate will say things like, "Your offer is insulting. I would never work for that much." Right? Nobody says that, right? Like that's that's really extreme. So what we show um, in our work, uh, me and my colleagues is that when you use the correct assertive language, which we refer to as, you know, principled negotiation that acknowledges the other side, but also asks for what they deserve uh, in a confident manner, women don't actually face backlash. So if I were to give women advice, I would say don't be intimidated by negotiation because you've seen all this work that if you negotiate, you're doomed. Uh, the, the findings are much more nuanced than that. Uh, obviously, uh, nuance doesn't make nice headlines. You know, I think that's a, that's a rousing, um, happy and positive uh, uh, message for everyone to say, go out and ask more and, uh, and, and don't stop yourself from negotiating. And I think that's a, that's a powerful message to send out. And we'll have you back on Habits Matter when your new research is out, because I'm, I'm certainly so, so, so intrigued by all the new findings that I'm sure we'll see there. Thank you so much with that. We've come to the end of the uh, end of our episode. Thank you so very much for such a thought provoking conversation. Um, I hope you had a great time as well. 
I certainly did. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was this was a great pleasure, and I'd love to be back. Thank you. Habits Matter is a show brought to you by Harappa Education. This episode was scripted, produced, and managed by Nitin Shamsuddin and Soumya Bahugana, under the editorial direction of Seema Chaudhary. Shout out to Madhvan, a super talented audio engineer, and a brilliant design team for the snazzy creatives. I hope you're enjoying our special season four. Don't forget to tune into the first episode as well, where we decode the phenomenon of grey vino events with the brilliant Michelle Booker. It's full of some fascinating insights. Follow Habits Matter on Instagram at habits.matter and Harappa Education on your favorite social media channels.